kids. Time for Kids Connect. Have a great time. My wife reminded me to uh, remove my microphone when I'm singing. <laughs> She's like, I love you, but you're terrible. <laughs> well, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts today, and uh, we're in chapters 25 and 26. I've entitled the sermon, From Darkness to Light, and it's a fascinating chapter. We get to meet some incredible uh, people in this these two chapters. Uh, first, uh, though, I want to begin by telling you about Christian pastor and author Max Licato's story of a man he met named Robert Reed in his book, Applause for Heaven. He says this, I have everything I need for joy, Robert Reed said. Amazing, I thought. His hands are twisted and his feet are useless. He can't bathe himself. He can't feed himself, he can't brush his teeth, comb his hair, or even put on his own underwear. His speech drags like an old tape player running out of batteries. His shirts are held together by strips of Velcro. Robert has cerebral palsy. The disease keeps him from driving a car, riding a bike, and going for a walk. But what it didn't stop him do was graduating from high school. And it didn't stop him from going to Abilene Christian University, where he graduated with a four-year degree in Latin. Having cerebral palsy didn't stop him from teaching at a junior college in the St. Louis area. And it certainly didn't stop him from doing five overseas missions trips. And Robert's disease didn't prevent him from eventually becoming a missionary in the country of Portugal. This is incredible. He moved to the city of Lisbon, Portugal alone in 1972. He rented a hotel room and began studying Portuguese. He found a restaurant owner who was willing to feed him after the restaurant closed. He found a tutor who was willing to instruct him in Portuguese. And after a number of months went by, Robert was really feeling confident. He was settled. His language was coming along. And he began visiting the beautiful local park right in the center of Lisbon. And he got all these brochures about Christ. And he eventually established a little station in the park and he would go every single day to the park and talk to people about Jesus. Within six years, Robert Reed had led 70 people to faith in Christ, one of whom became his wife, Rosa. I Max Licato says, I heard Robert speak recently. I watched other men carry him in his wheelchair onto the platform. I watched them lay a Bible in his lap. I watched his stiff fingers force open the pages. And I watched people in the audience wipe away tears of admiration 
on their faces. Robert could have asked for sympathy or pity, but he did just the opposite. He held his bent hand up in the air and boasted, I have everything I need for joy. You see, his shirts are held together by Velcro, but his life is held together by joy. And you know, as I read that story this week, I thought, that's exactly like the Apostle Paul. Paul has been stuck in prison at this point for two solid years, trial after trial. His own flesh and blood fellow Jews hell-bent on trying to see him dead. Uncaring Romans, just trying to get whatever political gain they could out of his case. The greatest church planter and evangelist in the first thousand years of the church is completely dependent on the love and charity of the local Christians in that little city of Caesarea. He was dependent on them for his food, for his clothing, for fellowship, for news from the outside world. In our passage today, Paul is trotted out one more time to tell his testimony and present his case. This time to King Agrippa and Agrippa's sister, Berenice. Paul could have stood in front of the court that day in total despair. He could have been a broken man, but instead he comes out with passion and fire and a razor-sharp mind. We're going to pick it up in chapter 25 Verses 13 to 15. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus, since they were spending many days there. Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. Then we're going to jump down to verse 23. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers, prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. And then over in 26, we're jumping down the first three verses. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All right, so an amazing scene. And Luke introduces us to these brand new characters. Bernice, and Bernice is the sister, and Agrippa is the brother, King Agrippa. 
Now, it's extremely helpful to get a little bit of the scoop on these two. What's, what's their background? Who are they? What's going on? So we're going to start with Bernice. Now, our modern English translations translate her name Bernice. It's just more common in English. It's easier to say. But in Greek, there's actually an extra E. It's actually Berenice. That's how her name is supposed to be said. She was a member of the Herodian dynasty, started by Herod the Great. And they had a run from 39 BC to 92 AD, or as the new uh, lettering says, the before the common era to the common era. So 120 plus years, the Herodians were in charge of the Roman province of Judea. And Bernice shows up with her brother, King Agrippa. Apparently she had quite a hairdo. That was amazing. At this point, she's part of the court and helped her brother rule. And up until the events of Acts 25 and 26, history tells us that she had two marriages. The first one, her husband died. And the second one, she was, had a marriage of political alliance to an older man. And she put up with it for four or five years and finally had enough and left him. So at this point in Acts 25 and 26, she is single. She's part of the court. And this was a very intelligent, adept woman. She knew politics. She knew power. And she was a big asset to her brother. Apparently, after the events of Acts 25 and 26, a few years later, she comes in contact with the Roman general Titus Flavius Vespasianus. I had to practice that. That is not easy to say. And she spotted a stepping stone to power. She ended up having an affair with him, and he rose all the way to the emperor. He became Caesar at one point. And he brought her to Rome, and apparently she wielded quite a lot of power in Rome. And finally, the Romans got tired of her because she was a foreigner. She wasn't Italian. She wasn't Roman-born. And so they eventually got tired of her, and Titus finally sent her away. He said, you're too much of a political liability. All right, now on to the brother, King Agrippa. He ends up being the last king in the Herodian dynasty. And he very much sided with the Romans. So the Jews hated him. They hated the guy. Uh, but he had time for, his, for haircuts, clearly. Especially as resentment built up, and history tells us in AD 70, the Romans went in and and absolutely crushed the city, killed so many people, it was horrible. And so Herod, King Agrippa, was not popular with the local Jewish people. Now he himself is Jewish. His, his wife, or his sister Bernice, Berenice, is also kind of Jewish. But they weren't strict followers of Judaism, but they knew all about it in detail. These people weren't so much interested in a relationship with God as they were with power. Now, remember the irony of the situation here. Their great, great, great grandfather, Herod the Great, was the one who tried to kill Jesus as an infant. And now, all these generations later, we have King Agrippa and the sister Berenice wanting to know more about the Christian faith, specifically what Paul the foremost evangelist and church planter has to say. Ironic for sure. So Paul's brought in before them. He's brought in before King Agrippa, Bernice, Berenice, Festus, Roman guards, other members of the court. This would have been a massive 
gathering of people. When I got to go to Israel in 2012, you can still walk into the remains of the palace at Caesarea. And uh, it was pretty amazing to walk in there and think, wow, Paul was right here standing on this marble floor. Amazing stuff. Now, as I said, Paul could have been the discouraged, broken prisoner. I mean, my goodness, it had been a tough couple years. But that doesn't turn out to be the case at all. I love the confidence that he shows as he begins to address them. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you're well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. That's a master public speaker, a master orator who is giving you know, kudos to his audience, and he's making an important connection. He's acknowledging that Agrippa and Berenice have a Jewish history. They know the first half of the Bible, and that was really important because Paul is going to go a little bit deeper than he has in his other trials or his other times of testimony. Now, eventually, the Apostle Paul would go on to write these words to the church he planted in Corinth. In verses chapter 4, 16 and 17, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And one of the things that's really hit me through the book of Acts is when Paul writes those words, that is not just an ivory tower academic writing some words that he hasn't personally experienced. As we've journeyed through Acts, we've seen Paul end up in jail numerous times. He's been beaten. He's gone through earthquakes. He's been in riots. And here he is two plus years of imprisonment. When Paul said, outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we're being, be, being renewed day by day. He meant it. He had lived it. He was totally dependent on Christ living inside of him to make it every single day. And I stopped and I thought about that as I was preparing this sermon. I thought, you know what? I think every single one of us has times in our lives when we can relate to what Paul was saying. That we do feel like, man, life is tough in this particular season of my life. Things are going wrong. I've got lots of troubles, lots of issues, lots of obstacles. I'm feeling like outwardly I'm wasting away. But I want to remind myself and all of us here this morning, do not despair. Because this is what Jesus offers you. Inward renewal day by day. I think that's so important. We can be stuck in a job we hate, paying way too much for rent in an inflated market. You don't see much of a career path ahead. All those things can come in on you. But when your eyes are focused on Christ and you claim that, it's an inward renewal day by day. All right, that's a pretty good beginning and we haven't even hit the testimony yet. We're going to jump down to verse 12 of chapter 26. Paul is explaining his conversion moment. He says, On one of those journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. 
We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then this beautiful verse, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. What a great line. He says, First to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem, and to Judea, and to all the Gentiles, I preach, I preach that they should repent and turn to God, demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very stay, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. Amazing stuff. Now, this is the third time that Paul's kind of given this testimony. He's recapped his big conversion moment on the road to Damascus. And this is the first time of the three that this line is included where Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Now, we are half a world away, 22 centuries removed, and we go, what on earth does that mean? What's kicking the goads? Well, it turns out to come from first century farming. And what a farmer would do if he had a team of oxen and he was plowing his field he would make a long pole like that, sharpened on one end. And as the oxen were going along, sometimes they would stop or, or get distracted or want to stop and eat. And he would take the pole and he would kind of poke them in their haunch. And they would, whoa, and they'd get going again. Now, sometimes the oxen would, wouldn't like that. They wouldn't like the sharp stick poking them. And they would kick backwards. But when they did that, all they did is jam that sharp spear into the back of their leg. And so what Jesus is saying to Paul is ultimately, why are you hurting yourself by opposing me? Jesus was saying to Paul, you're chasing down the early church. You're throwing in prison, people in prison. You're even killing them. You're hurting the body of Christ. But even more, you're destroying your, yourself. And your conscience knows it. You see, I think in that early period of Paul's life where he had been at Stephen's death, the very first Christian martyr, Stephen had given this amazing speech, heaven had opened up, Stephen had seen the Lord, and Paul was there giving his approval to his death as people picked up rocks and stoned Stephen to death. I think that incident haunted Paul. I don't think he could get it out of his mind. And then finally comes the apex, the, the mountaintop of Paul's conversion moment. He says this, he says, Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, the Lord replied. And that's the moment when all of the truth came crashing down on Paul. 
And he had two amazing realizations. Number one, it finally dawned on him. Jesus, who was crucified, is now actually here, alive, and talking to me. Oh my goodness. These Christians, these disciples of Jesus are actually right. They've been claiming that he didn't stay dead, but I didn't believe them. Until now, I'm confronted with the living Christ right in front of me. And then secondly, the immediate thought after was the whole trajectory of my life has been wrong. I thought I was pleasing God by hunting these people down. But I realize I've been fighting God. And then the beautiful forgiveness as Jesus gives Paul's life an entirely new purpose. I love it. Jesus says, now get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to point you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. And that wasn't the only time Jesus appeared to Paul. We saw a few chapters ago when Paul was in Jerusalem in, in prison, Jesus appeared to him again. He says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. So you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, Paul's included in that group. Christ is forgiving him. He's giving him a place who are sanctified by faith. What an unbelievable moment for Paul. It changes everything in his life. Paul has a place. He belongs. Now, Paul is actually the first in a long, long line over the last 2,000 years of, Christian, of people who were doing evil things, who were doing wrong things, who were fighting against God, who did a 180-degree turnaround when they met Jesus. Another one of those people, almost 2,000 years, is this man, David Hamilton. David grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, during the era of really bitter and violent conflict between Protestants and Catholics. Protestants wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK. The southern part of uh, Ireland wanted the whole thing to be the Republic of Ireland. And they had the long-going bombing war and people dying. It was crazy. And he writes, he says, my first awareness came when I was 12 years old. I went with a group of boys down to the river. There was a rope swing that went out over the river and we were playing and all of a sudden I was swimming in the river and the boys were up on the bank and they were all talking about what they were going to do to me. And they dragged him out of the water and they beat him up and threw him back in the river. And he was so shocked. He said, why are you beating me up? What have, what have I done? And they said, well, you're a Protestant and we're Catholic. And he said, as a 12-year-old kid, it was a turning point in his life. Not for the good, for the bad. And he realized, wow, they actually hate me and I haven't even done anything. He says he, it set him on a destructive course. And he, he vowed to himself that day he would never have Catholic friends again. As a teenager, by the age of 16, he had joined the Ulster Volunteer Force basically an illegal paramilitary group that he thought was fighting for the right things. He says, I thought we were fighting for a good cause, for loyalty to queen and country. He says, as a UVF member, I committed lots of crimes, a bombing, a bank robbery, several other armed robberies, 
And he says, by age of 17, I landed in jail. He says, I got released a year later, went back right into it, did a whole bunch of things for a number of years, and was eventually caught and re-sentenced to a 12-year sentence. Fast forward to a couple years, he's been in jail, and there's a chapel service. And for whatever reason, the guy leading the chapel service says, David, would you read the passage of Scripture today? And he didn't want to, but he realized everyone else would laugh at him if he didn't. So he got up, took the Bible, and he read the passage. And he said the weirdest thing happened after he had, he had read the account. It was Christmas time. It was the account of Jesus' birth. And he said, I couldn't help but a smile went on my face. It felt good. He says, I couldn't explain it. In fact, he says, I wrote a letter back home to my mom. He said, I'm having the weirdest experience. I don't understand what's happening. But then he says, you know, Christmas is over. Things move on. It's prison life. He says, near the end of January, he said, I had another amazing experience. One evening, not long before lockup, he said, I went. We were allowed to make ourselves a cup of tea, and I got back to my cell and someone had put a piece of paper on my thing. I opened it up, and inside was a tract, a Christian tract, explaining that Jesus is coming back again someday. And he says, at that point, I just laughed. I balled it up, threw it out of my cell. But a sudden thought kind of jumped into his mind. David, it's time for you to change. It's time for you to become a, a Christian. He goes, that was weird. And I tried to laugh it off, ignore it, and the thought just kept coming back. And I thought, this is ridiculous. God would never be interested in someone like me. Look at all the horrible things I've done. He says, thankfully, I had never actually killed someone. But he writes this amazing sentence. He goes, it wasn't for a lack of trying. <laughs> he says, I shook myself back to reality, put my cup on the shelf, he said they would give out Gideon's Bibles to the prisoners. He goes, nobody read them. We just used them for cigarette paper. He said, for the very first time, I took it down. I tried to read it, but it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And he says, I put it back on the shelf and I was lying on my bunk and I began to think of all the times in my life I should be dead. He said there was that time the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, sent a bomber and blew up the restaurant where I was sitting with my, me and my fiancé. Somehow we lived. He says there was another time I planted a bomb that exploded prematurely while I was still in the building. He said my jacket was torn to shreds, but somehow I came out without a scratch. Or the moment on the street where someone put a gun to my head, pulled the trigger, and the gun jammed. He says, not many people live to tell such tales, so why was I still alive? And as he lay on the, his bunk, it finally dawned on me. I think God kept me alive for some reason. The more I pondered it, he said, the more convinced I was. Suddenly, he says, I knew I wanted to become a Christian although I had no clue how to do that. Thankfully, next morning, I ran into the very prisoner who had put the tract on my bed. I told him what I was feeling. He said, I had mocked that guy many times for his faith, and I thought he would brush me off, but he didn't. He says, instead, he gave me a hug and pointed me towards the chaplain. And he also gave me another little tract. And this one contained this little prayer. 
said, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come into my heart today. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come into my heart to stay. And he said, I got back to my cell and he says, I prayed that prayer six times just to make sure God heard me. He says, I decided to tell one of my fellow prisoners about my decision. And to my horror, the guy started yelling in the prison, Davy's a Christian now. He's joined the God squad. When I spotted the prison chaplain, I said, I'm a Christian now. He goes, what? When did this happen? He brought him into his office, heard the whole story. David said, when that man prayed for me, he said, I felt like I was 10 feet tall. David Hamilton would go on to become an evangelist throughout Europe. He had a long career doing that. And then as a pastor in his native Northern Ireland. And when I read David's story and I thought about the Apostle Paul's conversion, I thought, you know what? There is the amazing truth of Christian history for 2,000 years. God is always taking people like Paul. He's always taking people like David and doing a 180 in their lives. And the other thing that struck me is there's actually two ways to be lost, to be far from God. One is you can be lost, you can be far from God because no one's ever told you about it. You were never introduced to Jesus. Your family never went to church. The only time you heard the name of Jesus was maybe as a swear word. You never heard the good news of the gospel. You didn't really interact with many Christians. You grew up and attempted to live life with no connection to God, no repentance and faith in Jesus. That's one way to be lost. Maybe we could call it being secularly lost. If that is your experience and you came to faith and you are now a parent, I want to beg you and plead with you, parents, pass that on to your kids. Tell them your story. Tell them how you came to faith, what all the factors were that God used. And then show your kids the other side of the track. Maybe take them down to a place like Our Place Shelter in Victoria. If you give a donation, you can go in and serve breakfast to folks on the street. Folks that are struggling with drug addiction, mental health, all those kind of things. That is such a great thing to do with your kids. It will lead to so many conversations. That's one way to be lost. The other way is to be religiously lost. Think about the Apostle Paul. He had religion all around him from the moment he was born. Yet he was far from God. He was actually opposing God's will. He was fighting against him. David Hamilton was surrounded by religion as he grew up in Belfast. He knew you either went to a Protestant church or a Catholic church. David knew the outward trappings of religion, but he absolutely did not know Jesus in any kind of personal way. And maybe you're, you had an upbringing where you grew up in a strict religious family. And that's one of the things you've needed to process and figure out in your adult life. And, and what every person who grows up in that has to come to is a, a point where you separate the trappings of religion from true faith in Christ. Because it's pretty easy for kids to get the message that being a Christian equals being a good boy or a good girl. Good boys and girls don't smoke or vape or drink alcohol or date someone who does. They don't gamble, go to bad movies or mute, listen to bad music. Good boys and girls don't play sports on Sundays. 
At some point as an adult in your journey, you have to make a separation between the trappings of religion and the core of faith. You have to encounter the living Jesus on your own road to Damascus. Having a legitimate relationship with Jesus when you come to him in repentance and faith, ask for forgiveness, and he in turn lovingly turns your life around and gives you a new purpose, just like he did for Paul, just like he did for David Hamilton. Now, it may not be the case that kids who grew up in, in a more strict religious home automatically end up religiously lost. Some kids seem to manage to get the gospel and come to sincere faith. But in my experience, that's the minority, not the majority. The other group in danger of growing up religiously lost are those attending Christian schools or Christian homeschooling groups. Now hear me loud and clear this morning. Those are great options to school your kids. But parents, if you leave it up to the school to teach your kids the gospel, they're going to miss it. They can fall through the cracks. They can graduate after 12 years in a Christian school and you think they've heard it, but they haven't. Parents, I want to plead with you this morning, make sure your kids understand the heart of the gospel. Pull out Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 and give them a clear understanding of the gospel. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, parents, your kids are not saved by good works, but they are saved for good works. God redeems our past and he gives us a future. And it's not the teachers and the staff at the Christian school's job to ensure your kid hears the gospel. Parents, that's your job. Well, Paul's audience of King Agrippa, his sister Berenice, the Roman governor Festus, the whole court has heard Paul's passionate testimony. The Holy Spirit is actually using Paul's words to get right to their hearts. What will happen? Will they choose? Will they decide? We're going to pick it up in verse 22. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would have said. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people, to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it has not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. 
You can see the Holy Spirit's working. These tests of this Paul's testimony is getting dangerously close to the heart of these rulers. I love Festus's reaction. You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. So what caused Paul, what caused Festus to react that way? I mean, it's not like Paul got up there and said, you know, I've encountered some sea monsters who are made out of cheese, or the boiled eggs I had this morning are talking to me. He wasn't crazy on that level. So what made Festus say you are out of your mind? Well, the key is understanding kind of the Roman mindset. You've got to remember, Festus is like a career soldier. He's become a Roman politician. And the way Rome structured things is hardwired into his brain. And what Festus is thinking is the story of a crucified and risen Messiah is nonsense. doesn't make any sense to him. Because in his mind, a king would never rise to power by way of suffering and death. A king would never get that way. There's been no Caesar in the history of Rome who ever got their position through suffering and death and humble service. And the second thing that comes into Festus' mind, he said, it's plainly obvious to everyone that dead men do not rise to new life. You keep talking about this Jesus who was resurrected to life. That just doesn't happen. And I love Paul's courteous response. He says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, but replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. You know what? Here's the astounding thing. 2,000 years later, we name our dogs Nero and Caesar, and we name our kids Peter and Paul. Isn't that amazing? The greatest king in all of history, Jesus, proved that suffering and death and resurrection turn out to be the ultimate path to getting the keys to the kingdom, a kingdom that is still going strong 2,000 years later. Rome is long dead. There's a man named Paul Meyer. He was professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University. And he's famous for pointing out exactly what Paul said here. He says, King Agrippa, none of this was done in secret. None of this was done in the corner. It wasn't a secret. He said all of this was done very publicly. And so Paul Meyer, his observation was, he says, But Jerusalem is the very last place it could have started. The Christian faith could have started. He said if Jesus' tomb had remained occupied, since anyone who could produce a dead Jesus would have driven a wooden stake through the heart of this brand new Christian faith. But they couldn't. The tomb was empty. There was no body. Remember that the tomb was sealed by a giant rock, had a squad of Roman soldiers guarding it. That's really hard to explain. Many people have tried. In fact, the official position of the religion of Islam says that Jesus didn't really die, he simply swooned. Now, if you stop and think about that, it's a little bit crazy, because here's what would have happened, had to happen. Jesus, who we remember, has been up for 48 hours, been through a trial, been punched, beaten, whipped, all these horrible things. 
He's lost a ton of blood. At one point, he is stabbed in the side with a spear. He is crucified. He's experiencing unimaginable pain as he hangs on the cross. And finally, he gives up his spirit. He dies. The Roman soldiers take him down. And Roman soldiers knew who was dead and who wasn't. These guys were good at their job. In order for that theory to be true, Jesus would then have to be taken to a tomb, the rock put in place, soldiers out front, and for three days in that tomb with no food or water, Jesus would need to revive, be strong enough to roll the stone away, beat up the guards, and make his way to freedom. Totally absurd. It's why Paul says, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. So that's what Festus threw back at Paul. Festus is trying to keep the gospel away from his head. He doesn't allow it to make sense to his own head. Now it's King Agrippa's turn. He has a different issue. It's not his head, it's his heart. It's his will. Agrippa is a Herodian. His family's been ruling over the Jews for 120 plus years. He knows the first half of the Bible. He knows of the words of the prophet predicting the Messiah. In fact, it was his great-great-great-grandfather Herod who said, where's the Messiah going to be born? And the priests brought out the, the Bible and they showed him Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You see, Agrippa knew the prophecies. He knew the prophets. That's why Paul says... I know you know the prophets. Do you believe them? All of this prediction. Agrippa would have undeniably have read Isaiah. Isaiah 53 lays out Jesus' crucifixion in detail. 800 years before it ever took place. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Agrippa knows this. He knows the prophets. He knows the, the life of Jesus he was in Jerusalem while Jesus was teaching and preaching and healing people and attracting crowds. Agrippa was there when Jesus was crucified. And now his disciples say he is risen again. And here he is face to face with the Apostle Paul who says, I met the living Jesus face to face. And Agrippa has this emotional outburst. It says, Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? So Festus was having trouble with his head, allowing the facts to enter his head, and Agrippa is having trouble believing because his will didn't want to accept it. He didn't want to give up power, pomp, and position. And you know what? It is still the same for us today. For ourselves, our families, our friends, our co-workers, it's either a head issue or it's a heart issue. And I want you to leave this sermon today challenged and confident that Jesus is the solution to both our heads and our hearts.
Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have a very simple prayer to pray. We are grateful. Thank you. Thank you for saving the Apostle Paul. Thank you for saving David Hamilton. Thank you for saving each and every one of us and offering us a chance at new life, a 180-degree turnaround. And Lord, once we follow you, you give us purpose and and a mission and, and a direction in life. And we're so grateful, Lord. We're so grateful. And as we finish our service today, as as we get the joy of being together, of of worshiping you, Lord, take our offering of, of prayer and praise and may it be glorifying to you. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. We have asked our board chair,